Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right. What's up, Gromies? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I am your moderator, Keisha, and this is episode 81. Here's how we do it. I will keep an eye out for questions in the chat, drop them anytime. And if your question gets picked, we'll get right to it. We're also going live on YouTube. So if you're logging in over there, post your questions. And if yours gets picked, we'll do our best to cover it during the show. And we are also live on Instagram. So if you got questions over there, drop us a DM. If you're not on our email list, you want to head over to Arroya.io, sign up for our newsletter and our, on our homepage, and you'll get the latest news and updates from the Ultimate Cannabis Cultivation Platform. Lots coming down the pipeline, and you definitely want to stay tuned for the whole session today because we've got a big announcement at the end of the show. What's up, Jason? Hi. Nice to be in studio with you. It is. It's kind of crazy. I'm freaking out. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's really fun having you in here. <laughs> it's good to be here. Awesome. Well, let's, I think we're going to just get right to it. Are you ready for our first question? I am. All right. Well, this one we got in. We get a, we get these a few uh, times. Uh, let's. We figured we go ahead and address it directly. Somebody wants to know how much does a subscription to Arroya cost? Let's yeah. talk about it. So we um, used to be on the the direct square footage where the pricing was correlated specifically with exactly the amount of square footage and canopy being monitored in the system. Um, we are still on square footage, but we have broken that into tiers. Mm. And so at the the lowest tier. Uh, Roy is starting at 150 bucks a month. There it is. Where can people go to learn a little bit more if they want more details? Yeah, absolutely. So probably the, you know the best way to get started learning about Arroya is arroya.io on the web. Um, go ahead and you know request a quote or request a demo. I think the button's up in the top right mm -hmm. of the website. Um, that'll get you hooked up with some of our sales staff, and uh, we do custom tailored quotes for larger facilities, and so we'll make sure that that subscription matches the size of uh, commercial cultivation operation you're running. Fantastic. Yeah, hit us up, get a demo. Let's talk about what you got going on over there. Sweet. Let's keep it moving. We also just got a write-in asking, does Arroya offer training for or on the cultivation product it sells? If so, how do we set that up? Do we offer education on the product? Yeah, training. They're uh, looking for some training. Um, yeah. So, you know, when, when you are a subscriber for Arroya, Obviously, you get the hardware and then you get our onboarding. And so basically what happens is we, we hook up with uh, some of your team members there on site. Um, a lot of times we're doing that digitally for some of the smaller grows, for some of the larger grows. Um, we, we try to make it to, to help do the install. And really what that looks like is an onboarding process. First, getting the interface tailored for your facility, making sure it's all mapped out, uh, helping you get the sensors installed, gateways online and uh, make sure you're starting to get data the right way. Um, after that, uh, it's basically follow up with a few training calls uh, and then some agronomic advising. So those training calls are really to try and get the most out of the software, including harvest groups, tasking, alerts, any of the harvesting work that you're doing and um, kind of just fully utilize what we've built Arroya to be as a production management system. Um, and you know, after, after you got some, some weeks of data, it's kind of time to dig in and start talking about the plants. Mm -hmm. What does that data that we see mean? Um, what are some options for improving, whether it be environmental parameters or possibly tailoring irrigations to steer crop growth? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, yeah, just to be clear, the, the consultations are built into the subscription fee, right? That's not extra. Uh, for the most part, yep. 
Um, you know, basically what, what's going on there is we're just trying to supply the, the footing work as far as, you know, one hardware training two software training, and then three is follow up agronomic education. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for that question, for submitting that. We always appreciate anything specific to Arroyo, but also let's get right into cultivation and crop steering. YouTube is already buzzing. So we got this question here from IndieBud. They wrote, what kind of pipes are used to deliver water to the rooms from fertigation room? Are they PVC pipes, ones used for water pool systems? I have a small 80 light facility in four rooms and setting that up. Yeah, most of the time you're looking at uh, PVC. Um, you know, typically I would recommend, you know, gray schedule 80 PVC just because it's a little bit more durable. Um, that's pretty much the, the typical for com uh, commercial cultivation facilities. Um, you know, if you're at a, a smaller, say maybe you're doing home grow or something, you might end up with packs or uh, old school CPVC if, if you're running some smaller lines. But, but anything that's on scales is typically going to be in a, a PVC construction. Great. Awesome. IndieBud, thank you for that. I know you've submitted a few questions, but uh, we're going to do our best to get as many of those as we can. We got a write-in from Instagram from Alex here. They want to know, what pour water EC do you guys maintain in cocoa after stretch in flower? I'm going with a 3.0 EC, pH 6.2. Pour water EC is showing 4.6 to 6.8. I am still seeing purple coloring on top of fan leaves. Got any advice for Alex? Yeah, so we're looking at after stretch. Um, so typically, you know, after, kind of the weird thing here is a lot of times what people call stretch phase, you know, we're always referring it to generative stacking is the steering that we're trying to do. So we're trying to basically control how much stretch that we're seeing. Uh, in most strains, what's really going on there is we're, um, we're mitigating how much stretch is coming out of the plant. And that the goal is to get as many bud sites as possible. So typically shooting to reduce node spacing. Um, and we'll do that as, as long as it needs to, to start to curb some of that vertical growth in the plant. And so after that, you know, we're typically talking about that vegetative bulking type of strategy. And, you know, in a vegetative bulking strategy, root zone ECs, you know, in the, in the range of say, um, you know, five to eight is usually a pretty good spot to be for, um, you know, unknown or first time that you're running a strain, um, that's a great area to shoot. So when we talk about, you know, that being a range, you know, a lot of times, all right, well, after, um, after our first irrigations, we'll start to see that EC typically drop. Um, and then before the first irrigation in the day, we'll, we'll see it rise up. And so EC is a fairly dynamic number, especially when we're looking at hungry plants, plants that are going through a significant amount of dryback. Um, Basically, what's happening is some of the salts are concentrating. A little bit less water in there, same amount of salt, you'll see that EC rise up. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the ranges that are, are typically a reasonable range in vegetative bulking. Mm -hmm. You know, that being said, some strains are going to perform differently at that. So that's where documenting in the system, you know, taking as many pictures and logging them into Arroyo as you can. Do it on a, a timeline basis. Uh, obviously, try and get that into your harvest group so that when you go back and compare some changes that you might be doing to a strain, uh, that you know which way is the, the best for the plant's performance. Mm -hmm. I want to do that crop registration is important. Awesome. Okay. 
Thank you for that question. Thanks for bearing with us, y'all. We got some audio issues on YouTube, but don't you worry, we're working on it. Hold tight. Um, let me ask this next question from Indie Bud. They wrote earlier about pipes. Um, and so the second question here, they're looking at how to calculate how much water I'll be using per plant on average hourly growing in two gallon cocoa so I can plan tube size accordingly. Sure. So, um, you know, basically it kind of comes down to if you have some existing numbers for the plant sizes that you're working with right now, um, and, and we can go do the reverse math and say, all right, well, if we're looking at, at uh, you know, 25% dry back in a one gallon pot, that's a quarter of a gallon a day um, for our typical um, plants, maybe in, in that size, maybe if we're in a two gallon, maybe we're also seeing 25% on a much larger plant. Um, so it's going to kind of come down to your growing style and what, what your strains are seeing. Um, obviously you're going to want to oversize a little bit, but to get back to the math, basically, let's say, yeah, let's round these numbers. Let's say we're in a two gallon cocoa bag. Uh, you know, we're hitting a 25% dry back. So we've got pretty massive plants. So on a daily basis, our per plant water usage would be, uh, you know, 25% times two gallons. We got a half gallon of water that's being transpired and evaporated out of that plant. Um, so if we're running, um, let's say a thousand plants in the room, um, that's going to be 500 gallons per day. All right. Wow. Quick math. Do you see all that just envisioning in front of your eyes? That's amazing. <laughs> I, I did. I did all right in math growing up. You did good. You know, a little thing, a little something about math. Our, our uh, head of applied sciences. Yes, I get it. And you know, as far as application goes, you also want to kind of consider the drip emitter size, right? So. Yeah, I think that's the reason that he was specifying hourly. Um, obviously, you're just going to have to break that down into what is my drip emitter rate. Um, and so we always want to be able to supply, supply more water to the room than the total of the dripper rate. All right. So if we got two drippers per plant, we're in the same room of 1,000 plants. That's going to be what 2,000 drippers in there. Um, they're half gallon per hour drippers. Then um let's see we're gonna need thousand gallons per hour right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay excellent good luck out there with that keep us posted indie bud all right blaze dropped a question on youtube he wrote hey guys what is the best way to record average canopy heights in large flower rooms what other metrics should we record <laughs> this is a good question because um it makes you wonder what does best mean? Um, so the, you know, the, the best way is to probably use some type of, um, LIDAR measurement or, or other type of optical measuring system. Mm -hmm. Um, I know there's a, a few companies out there that, that do offer that kind of work, which should give you an average canopy height and, and the, the peaks and the valleys and then try and break that down into a digestible number. Um, so that might be the best way. Uh, another, Best way might be the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way, um, depending on how you're using this data. And uh, for me, a lot of times, just having a yardstick oh. uh, up mm. on the trellis posts mm -hmm. is, a, is a great way for a, a quick glance and measurement. Um, a super easy way, you know, if you're familiar with playing with your security cameras a little bit, just set up a security camera so you, you're shooting across the canopy height against that yardstick. Um, and then you don't even have to be in the room and you know how tall your plants are. There you go. And you can also go back and do maybe a time series, um, or time-lapse, um, photography of that mm -hmm. and just using the security camera and be like, all right, well, this is what we're saying. We're seeing an inch of growth a day when we, um, 
are irrigating the plant this way in that environment. Oh, nice. Back to it'd just be cool footage to look at, right? Yeah. And you know, that the tricky thing about that, which is kind of why I gave this a two prong answer is because when you do just have a yardstick, what, what are you calling canopy height? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, is canopy height where the top of my, uh, where my Calyx peaks are at, mm-hmm. um, uh, how, how do I visually justify what the, the middle of the canopy is? Ah, okay. Um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, um, that, that's, like I says, probably the, the least expensive, more effective way to start capturing some of that data. And, and depending on what you're doing with it, you, know, you might want to invest in a little bit more complicated solution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. That was a great hack though. Good luck out there, Blaze. Keep us posted. All right. Rocket Bud Farms wrote in. They're looking for, uh, they're asking, can you please explain how to calculate, i.e. 20% dryback, if cocoa has 60% full saturation rate? Would 20% of that then be 40, 48%? Yeah, so with any time that we're talking um, about drybacks and about uh Volumetric water content is the the technical way that we talk about it. Um, basically, if and we'll use one gallon just because then I don't have to do any complicated math. Let's say we're in a one gallon cocoa bag, um, and in this case, he said sixty percent uh, volumetric water content is the field capacity of that cocoa, um, and that's a pretty common range for some of the what I call coffee cocoa, simply because it's um, a lot finer chip and pith than some of the chunky cocoa. Um, so let's say, yeah, 60% water content of one gallon would be 0.6 gallons of water that is in that substrate, right? When we're talking about a 20% dryback, we're talking about uh, not 20% of the field capacity, but 20% of the volumetric water content. So it actually makes it way easier for the math because we're looking at, all right, if we had one gallon of water and a one gallon substrate, we'd be at 100%. Well, since we have a bunch of pores in, or a bunch of product in there, um, that not everything is open pores. So that cocoa takes up some space. We'll see field capacity at say 60%. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if we see a 20% dryback, now we're at 40% water content in that substrate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, and we've seen this question quite a bit. Um, it's not 20% of the 60% when we are talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. 20% of the total volumetric, volumetric water, water content. content. All right. Yeah. Uh, you know, the nice thing there is if we want to say, all right, well, how much water is that? Well, 0.2 times one gallons, we got 0.2 gallons was the amount of dry back in full. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It helps when you simplify the math a little bit. Yeah. Just to try it out. Awesome. Thank you for that question, Rocket Bud Farms. All right. Let's keep it moving. Tyler dropped a question here. They want to know, what EC do you like to run under LED week seven and week eight? with 56 days to finish. When do you switch to plain RO? Currently running two EC, finish recipe week seven, and RO all of week eight, no flush. Did you get all that? You need me to read it? You read it? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I got most of it there. It's just the, the last part that, that's got me a little bit. He says no flush, but he's RO yeah. all of eight, week eight. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, that's why I like to avoid the term flush in most circumstances because uh, we, we don't know exactly what you mean. For from my perspective, when you are running just RO, that would be the flushing process. Um, but let's get back to the, the root of the question there. Uh, what ECs in, towards the end of flower? Mm-hmm. And 
when we're talking about ECs, we always need to specify what EC that we're measuring, right? So our input ECs are always going to be how much nutrients are we mixing into the fertigation, right? Um, substrate ECs measured with some type of electronic measurement, um, like capacitance with the Teros 12 so that we're also familiar with in the Roy system. And then there's also runoff EC as well. Um, for the most part, we're always controlling EC with the feed EC and how we are irrigating, right? Um, and also some of that is what the plant's doing with the EC that's in that substrate. Uh, say, typically our recommendations are running a fairly static or stable feed EC throughout the, the entire cycle, um, almost, right? Maybe last week, last 10 days, we'll drop that depending on if we're um, supplementing calcium nitrate or not. Ah. And so uh, that's also why I call it ripening, right? Because mm -hmm. that's, I personally don't like to ever go full RO unless maybe it's just like the very last day of um, flower, like the day that I'm, I'm harvesting. Mm -hmm. Sure, like these nutrients are just going to go to waste anyways. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, let's say in an LED room, you know, if we're running a, a fairly consistent uh, EC throughout the cycle, you know, you typically for, for LED rooms, we'll see it you know, in the ranges of three, five as a feed EC, um, sometimes a little bit higher. It's really going to depend on the manufacturer. We, we, we see some different effects depending on the, the brand of nutrient, mm -hmm. depending on what that, uh, that feed EC comes out as, as a numerical number on what nutrient availability is for the plant. Um, so, you know, it's, it's something where you know, typically, yeah, around that, that three, five range for feed EC, mm -hmm. um, up until, you know, say 10 days before harvest. And, and then a lot of times if, you know, if we are, um, trying to reduce the amount of uh, nitrogen or we, we can change up our feed so that we don't have nitrogen in the fertigation, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll be at three quarter to full strength newts. So, you know, running say around 3.0, um, if we are not supplementing, uh, you're getting rid of the nitrogen in the, the fertigation mix, then a lot of times we'll go to half to three quarter strength mm -hmm. is kind of, kind of where I'm at. And this, if you go to some of the earlier episodes, when, when we dive into this stuff, it, it's one of those things where I think people in the industry are a little bit all over the board. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, typically the goal is to get the most desirable smoke out of the product. And it's the, the age old white ash versus black ash. Mm -hmm. argument. Mm -hmm. And so really, you know, kind of the strategies. And I think one of the reasons that, that there is a lot of um, people that are used to running that RO at the end is just trying to, to reduce the amount of um, sugars and carbohydrate buildup in the plant. Okay. Uh, especially mm -hmm. the buds, because that's what's going to be smoked. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, you know, with some of the, the higher quality nutrients that we have now, um, with being able to reduce the nitrogen availability to the plant, uh, there's... From my experience, evidence that suggests that going with straight RO for, for duration is, is probably not the best way to optimize quality and mm. yield. Mm -hmm. um, and that being said, you know, if, if we're switching to RO very quickly from, uh, you know, say two or three EC, um, especially in something like Rockwell, where the osmotic potential changes very quickly, um, it's a very reactive media, uh, we just we want to make sure that we're, we're staggering down. Yeah, for making that big a change in the nutrients, it's um, changing that osmotic potential in the plant very quickly is never a good thing for the cells. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome, great insight. Thank you for that.
question. All right. Well, you know, y'all, we got we got some time in the show. If you got any live questions and want Jason to answer them, I cannot, but I can moderate. Um, <laughs> now's the time. We definitely want to hear from you. But we've got plenty of questions here that we were not able to get to some from a couple of weeks ago. So I'm going to dig right into those. Hector wrote in, what's the scientific reasoning on waiting an hour after lights on to start P1s? Any publications you recommend to read? I know Doc Bugby and his colleagues stated they don't need much time to ramp up. Big fan of Dr. Bruce Bugby over here. Yeah, you know, um, from the, the materials that I've read, a lot of times you know, cannabis is going to take half hour to 45 minutes to begin. It's, you know, to be up to full photosynthetic uh, rate. And, and so I think one of the things that we're doing there, you know, waiting the uh, hour to before irrigation is is just allowing that that plant to ramp up its appetite before we're trying to feed it right and so um you know as those plants begin photosynthesizing what's going on is those cells are getting to be active right they're going to be applying more suction to the substrate um, and so rather than you know making sure that plant has all available water right off the bat and it kind of wakes up slow we're we're getting it uh getting it a little bit of a jump start as far as how how it's going to pull up those nutrients. So mm -hmm. basically, allowing the the cells in the plant to produce some amount of vacuum and then giving um, giving it its first fertigation of the day. Mm -hmm. um, publications to read, uh, you know, I think uh, Doctor Justice um, with the Hemp Mind did some recent studies on uh, photosynthesis and the time of day. I don't remember specifically if it was hemp or um, or cannabis, um, but yeah, check it out. It basically talks about they used a, a Lycor um, to basically document how much photosynthetic rate was happening mm -hmm. at different times throughout the photo period. Mm -hmm. um, pretty cool stuff, uh, and yeah, it's a good read. Yeah. I, I know it was published in one of the. Um, one of the marijuana magazines, mm -hmm. probably about yeah. a year ago, year and a half ago. Dr. Justice is awesome. I know for me, when I started, plant empowerment was required reading. Just saying. It is. Um, some of us have struggled with it. It's, it's great educational material. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you definitely can read it a little faster sometimes. <laughs> uh, it's, it's in depth is what I'm trying it's to say. It's thorough. I'm still working on it. And I've been with the company two years. But I got time. <laughs> it gets started right off the bat. So. That's right. <laughs> Thank you for that question, Hector. All right. Jason. Jason has a question for you, Jason. What can you expect when running vegetative the entire run? I've noticed that my winter crops in a greenhouse don't burn nicely with black ash. The same genetics in autumn burn white ash and clean. So back to the ash question. Um, yeah, kind of, uh, what would we expect if we're running vegetative the entire run? Um, you know, typically what is going to happen is we're going to have larger node spacing, maybe not quite as much nodes. Um, flower development is going to typically start later in the plant cycle. And so we may have to run a longer cycle in order to actually get to ideal ripeness of the, the, the plant. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons that pretty much any of the traditional indoor horticulture crops, when you're thinking about tomatoes and peppers, um, 
that are running greenhouses, they're all they've all been crop steering for you know, decades. Uh, and really, the goal here is that in order to optimize what's coming out of that plant, we need to make sure that we get bud set early in the reproductive cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically, let's give that thing some cues in order to build reproductive cells, start initiating the the growth of fruit or flower in this case. Um, so, you know, what would you expect if you're unvegetatively the whole time? <sighs> it depends what you consider vegetatively, mm. right? Like, you know, are we talking about, uh, you know, six hour irrigation window or are we talking about say, uh, you know, 10 hour irrigation window? Mm. Um, and I actually was watching some, a webinar the other day that, you know, you always, uh, you always hear me talking about it, like, Hey, it's a spectrum of how vegetative or how generatively we're running. Right. Right. And so it's like the needle on the gauge, right? Uh, when we talk about vegetative or generative, it's not always just, vegetative or generative it's like well how much is the environment and how much are the irrigations sitting are we leaning a little bit more vegetatively um and so that's why i mentioned you know our, what kind of irrigation window are you considering that you know say if we're running a six hour you know irrigation window that's going to be more balanced right so we're going to end up with a product that probably is is closer to a well-steered product mm-hmm. um than if we were running like 10 hour irrigation window mm-hmm. the entire cycle those those things are, are going to probably be fairly leggy. Okay. All right. Well, Jason, thank you for bringing the question over to Jason. We appreciate you. All right. Going to keep it moving here. Instagram Live has some questions. What's up, y'all? Thanks for your patience. We've, we've got a lot of questions coming in. Um, we have a submission here. Per somebody wrote, does runoff EC matter or will pH tell you more on what's going on in cocoa medium? Um, great question. So if you don't have red zone sensors for looking at EC, then uh, runoff EC is extremely important. It's really kind of one of the only insights uh, that you have to understanding what nutrient contra- concentration is in that substrate. And so, yes, ab- they're absolutely EC is, is vital if you don't have, uh, excuse me, runoff EC is vital if you don't have red zone sensors. Um, pH is also vital regardless of whether you have root zone sensors or not. Mm-hmm. So in general, most of the clients that I work with that um, are used to taking runoff EC and pH, uh, a lot of times basically I'll encourage them to keep taking runoff EC for you know two weeks, three weeks, a month, mm-hmm. while they get used to looking at root zone EC. Mm-hmm. And so the reason I do this is because if they're used to looking at runoff EC, I want them to start building a mental correlation between, all right, and uh, here's what we typically see with our runoff EC. Um, now that we have real-time root zone EC, h- how do my observations match with that? And how can I use that time series data to get a little bit more strategic or even just more detailed mm-hmm. with how I'm irrigating mm-hmm. and at what levels I'm irrigating? Um, runoff pH, still critical if you have root zone sensors or if you don't have root zone sensors. You know, that's the thing that's going on with pH is we're just trying to monitor obviously the incoming pH's interactions with the plant and the substrate. So if we're feeding it, say, you know, five, eight, and we have an EC or excuse me, a pH that's coming out at five, eight, then things are probably all good. Mm-hmm. The plant's eating uh, a balanced composition of nutrients in there. Mm-hmm. So when we mix up a fertigation solution, those micronutrients, macronutrients are all um, going to be dissolving into solution. 
right? And so when the plant's interacting with those, it's pulling specifically um, charged either cations or anions out of solution. Um, and that's why we're looking at pH is because we want to know, did the you know, composition of nutrients change? And sure, if the plant ate the same amount of negatively charged and positively charged um, nutrients, mm -hmm. then we wouldn't see that pH change. But most of the time, it's like the easiest way to get an understanding are, you know, hey, like, all right, this plant is running out of specific um, components to the fertigation mix. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, if you run into issues and your pH is the same and you think it is a nutrient thing, then you're going to have to send in for um, leaf tissue analysis okay. or substrate analysis. And um, in most situations, you will start to see that, you know, the pH fluctuate. It's just not super common for um, components of negatively and positively charged ions mm -hmm. to um, to get pulled up by the plant. Um, that being said, it's just going to depend on the nutrient manufacturer um, and what's going on in your plant's biology. Yeah. Well, similarly, we actually got another question on IG Live along these lines. Uh, Tricomb Valley want, wrote, when I check runoff from brand new cocoa, it's coming in at a very low pH, like 4.6 to 5. No matter how much nutrient solution I put through, the pH doesn't move. And if it does, it's a very small amount. Um, try and find a new cocoa supplier. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, you know, one of the things here as well is you probably don't have to be, you know, what's going on is it's, we're talking about how, how buffered is that cocoa? Um, you know, how well have they washed it? Where is the originating source of it? And so, you know, when you are trying to change the pH of the substrate, you don't necessarily even have to use, um, nutrients in your fertigation. Um, you know, we can just try and wash it, you know, on your own, mm -hmm. um, using a more basic amount. And so, you know, if we're at say, what do they say? Four, six for, um, pH. Yeah. Uh, what did he say? Four, six to five. Yeah. So let's say, you know, if we're at five and we're trying to be at, uh, say a feed of five, eight to six, you know, we definitely want to just, um, try and wash that substrate with around seven pH, right? Um, try and just get it, it up to par. Uh, and then an important thing to do would be to watch it afterwards, you know, after we go back down to our fertigation, um, obviously don't, don't be washing it while their plants are in there. Make sure that you're trying to prep it. And I guess all of this comes down mm -hmm. to is you have a ton of options for cocoa suppliers right now. Um, and so it's probably in the end, just going to be cheaper to find uh, a cocoa that works off the shelf mm. um, or out of the out of the pallet uh, than it is to try and and do all this work washing it and prepping it on your own. Oh, yeah. Some manufacturers are are doing that at their facility, or they're using a product that um, originates from somewhere that doesn't need that type of um, post purchase processing. All right, cool, cool. So many good questions coming in. All right, I'm moving on to YouTube here. We got a question from Tom. Uh, along the same lines here, where, can you go into a little detail about watching runoff pH to indicate the proper time to cut nitrogen after stretch? Can you give a little bit overview? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Looking at pH to to cut nitrogen, um, you know, most of the time, you know, when we're thinking about it, we're going to be doing it on kind of a strain specific ripening program. Uh, and a lot of times 
you know, towards the, the end of the cycle, we're letting that pH rise up just a little bit to reduce nitrogen solubility. Um, as far as how that would reflect when to cut nitrogen, that's a great question that I will actually have to research myself to, to give before I can give any good advice on, on how to do it that way. Um, for the most part, you know, what I'm looking at for that ripening is, all right, when, when do we really need to reduce how many white hairs are popping out of that plant? Uh, when, when do I need to induce um, some type of finishing environmental and irrigation strategies in order to meet my harvest deadline? Ah, uh, so we're looking at some plant peas in that picture. That's what I'm used to using, but mm -hmm. that is pretty, it's a reasonable idea to, to look at runoff pH. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right, Tom, thank you for that question. And we'll look forward to some follow-up because Jason's going to dig into it further. Awesome. All right. We got this question here from George. Hey guys, how do you properly water clones? I used to soak Rockwell cubes and let them, I think, sit like that for seven to 10 days and then soak if needed. Is there a better way? Um, so my favorite way to figure out how often I need to irrigate my clones is by using a, a kitchen scale, um, as the most simple way. If you have a way to, to log measurements from a load cell, uh, it's a great way to keep track of how much water content is in those cubes. Um, as far as, you know, when exactly you need to do that, just keep an eye on what that water content loss is. Typically it's going to get a little bit faster, a little bit faster every day as those plants begin to develop some amount of root mass, the, the early root mass in there. Um, and, and so I think, you know, for most of the Rockwell manufacturers, they're looking around like 40% when you want to first irrigate those things. Um, so say if we're at, you know, 65% for field capacity after the soak, um, we'll take that weight on the scale uh, and then, you know, maybe just take a measurement every day and, and chart it. Um, and that'll give you a good idea as far as, you know, with the specific environmental parameters, with the specific strain, we're usually seeing, say, five and a half days, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and that'll just help you optimize your SOPs, right? Rather than saying, hey, we do it at six days for all strains, um, six days for all of our clone rooms. Mm -hmm. We can say, hey, this, these are the parameters that you need to meet. Um, irrigate when it's at X water content or X grams. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. Cool. Keeping it moving. We're about to round out the hour here. And as you know, the last few minutes of the show, we got a big announcement. So stay tuned. All right. But I'm going to keep going. Coastal Ripper wrote in, how bad is it to not maintain zero diff first few weeks of bloom? Should I get a heater or am I good as long as I maintain the VPT, VPD of 1.0? Oh, great question. Um, I wouldn't get too concerned about it as long as you can maintain that VPD. Um, you know, for for the first few weeks, if you know you're zero to five, um, then that's probably a, a great place to be as far as keeping your nighttime temps up. Um, you know, if, if you're really trying to push generative, you you might actually be in a good situation to have an increased night diff. Kind of the strategy that that we go behind when we give a very generic recommendation of night day diffs is just keeping that um, temperature up to help you know pl plant metabolism mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so <laughs> in most circumstances we're talking about a pretty hard generative push at you know the first two three weeks of flower mm -hmm. and what is going on is we're doing that push using 
irrigation techniques. Mm-hmm. A lot of times the environment is still in a more vegetative state, right? So we're giving it kind of actually mixed cues. And the reason there is because we want to maintain or encourage as much plant growth as possible with some of those vegetative cues in the environment. Mm-hmm. But we want to make sure that we're getting a, a physiological change in the plant. We want to make sure that we're, you know, indicating to that plant that its hormone balance should become more reproductive. All right. Thank you for that question. I'm going to keep on going. Thomas dropped this one on Instagram. Struggling to bring up my pH, pushing more runoff now as we have finished week three. Runoff EC is good, but runoff pH is not rising to where I want it. Could this be because of algae buildup on top of my medium? Um, probably not due to the allergy. Hmm. Uh, I, I guess my questions would be, all right, what, what exactly is your feed EC, um, you know, or feed pH, excuse me, if your, you know, feed pH is, um, different than what you'd want to see coming out of the runoff, then you might just need to alter your, your feed pH. Um, especially if pushing more runoff is not helping balance it. Um, that being said, if you are inputting with a corrective pH, uh, and you're still not seeing the runoff pH numbers that you want, it's probably a good time to send in for a leaf tissue analysis and try and get an understanding of, um, what types of excesses or deficiencies are we seeing in that plant? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a number of companies that also do substrate analysis. So you can just, you know, get a, get a jar going from them and, uh, send in for some samples. And there's a lot of companies these days are, you know, looking at two to three day turnaround, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, on that kind of timeline, uh, if you're in week three, then you're in a, probably a pretty good spot to, to try and salvage some of what you're doing. Um, and, and it really kind of comes down to how much off are you, right? If we're 0.1 or 0.2 off, we might not get too stressed. We may not see a huge um, decrease in, in output from the crop. That being said, if we're looking at you know, 0.5, 0.6, higher than that, as far as um, number of uh, tints in the pH scale that need to be adjusted, then Mm. it's definitely a good time to to make some decisions. Mm. Take action. All right. Thomas, good luck out there. All right. We got a follow-up from Tricone Valley. They wrote earlier they were having uh, issues with their brand new cocoa coming in a low pH. So they wrote, thank you. I appreciate you guys so much. Just to ask one other question. I unfortunately already transplanted a bunch of plants into this medium and I'm getting a rust covering on the surface of the big fan leaves on some of them. I'm assuming it is a pH fluctuation. That's what made me look into this. I can send you a picture if needed. I was just wondering what you would do if you're already in this situation. Yeah. Um, I would, uh, you know, I would probably feed with a little bit higher pH than you really want to be feeding. Um, just try and offset that. Cause if we keep seeing low runoff, uh, or low pH in our runoff, um, the substrate's probably even lower than what your runoff is. Mm-hmm. And the, if you are seeing deficiencies early right now, uh, it's not going to probably get better really fast unless you are trying to offset and, um, maintain a corrected pH in that substrate. So you, what you might end up doing is um, doing a larger amount of small irrigations just to try and help 
uh, refresh and stabilize that pH. Oh, Tricom Valley, we're rooting for you. Good luck. Keep us posted. Tell us what's going on, okay? All right. I love this question. I am so excited to ask it. Mortal Mikey dropped this on Instagram. Shout out to Keisha for being in the driver's seat today. Thank you for noticing. And what strain are you growing at home these days? I'm so glad you asked. I'm not growing any strains because I killed one plant a few months ago, but I did succeed in uh, one, the other one, um, a single cola, and it is drying in my home right now. And when I get back home, I will be putting that in a jar and uh, curing it. So. Yeah. But luckily I have plenty of uh, stupid fruits from last year. I grew that and it's awesome. <laughs> Thank you for that question. I'm so glad I could contribute to the program today. <laughs> All right. We're going to keep going here. We got a question here from uh, Coastal Rips. Let's see. Hi, thanks for all the great knowledge you share. Heading into cooler days in SoCal, how important is it to maintain zero diff during the first few weeks of bloom? I think we, we, we had, did talk about that, was huh? that from someone else. It was a little bit. Yeah. It's a little bit phrased differently. So, I, I think anyway, we got it covered. We covered it. If you're watching it on YouTube, just hit the rewind button. We'll get back to you on that. All right. Cool. 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 Keep it moving. All right. We got this question from OG Kush not too long ago. Just didn't get a chance to get to it. Hi, I'm having dripper clogging issues. They've got Netafilm 0.5 GPH emitters. When increasing the feed EC to around 4.0 EC due to precipitation of calcium caused by high level of phosphorus. When I reduce the EC to three, the problem goes away, but my plants remain hungry. 2.5 root zone EC, even with reduced runoff to help stack EC in the root zone. Running LED fixtures around 1000 to 1200 PPFD, any suggestions? Um, yeah, I mean, the places that I would start is making sure that I have sufficiently sized, um, and number of mixing chambers in between my injections. Um, so, and that is, you know, assuming you're using a mechanical or pneumatic injection system for your fertigation. Um, you know, if you're hand mixing into a batch tank, uh, you, you might actually think about uh, making new uh, concentrations, nutrient concentrations, and then mixing those in the batch tank. Mm. Um, basically, what what's happened when in chemistry when we're looking at a precipitate, uh, certain um, certain nutrients, certain chemicals of any kind, what happens is if their concentrations are too high, they they bind into a solid and fall out of solution, right? Uh, and that's what he's talking about with, all right, that's what's causing his drippers to mm -hmm. clog. Mm -hmm. so he's got little little precipitate chunks floating down his, his nutrient system. So if you are using an injection system, making sure that our, um, our stock concentrates are mixed well, um, making sure that when they are being injected, they're mixed into solution individually. Um, so making sure that they're lined up um, in your injection mm -hmm. and that, correct order for that manufacturer of mm -hmm. nutrients. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, if you are in something like a, a batch tank, like I was talking about, just making sure that these things are in solution before we are, are getting them mixed together. And this is exactly why pretty much any dry salt nutrients uh, are coming in a two part, right? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. is simply because if we put A and B in the same bag and then we add a little bit of water, they're going to clump together and effectively cause you know, have a ah, precipitate. Uh, I actually did not know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And so I guess, you know, some of the solutions that we we're talking about there, um, also downstream from how things are being mixed would be just making sure less of a solution, I guess, more of a, a band-aid would be making sure that you have uh, good mesh filters installed. Um, you know, and, and that's usually going to be before each room, sometimes before each valve on the zone. Mm -hmm. right? Making sure that we're keeping those mesh filters clean. Um, you can do back flushes on them if, if, if that's an option for your fertigation system. Um, and then last off, I mean, yeah, you're probably going to need to uh, replace your drip stakes anyways. Um, and a lot of times I think cultivators or business owners um, that aren't listening to their cultivators that know better don't plan out some of the um, equipment maintenance costs in their business plans. Uh, and the real thing is, is they, you know, those drippers are working every day um, mm -hmm. in high intensity cultivation, like cannabis, like indoor cannabis is, uh, we do, we need lots of nutrients to those plants. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of just having it in the financial plan to, to get these replaced you know, once a year, um, it, it would probably be, uh, you know, at the minimum, the, the type of infrastructure that, that's needed. And when we look at the value of the crop, um, really what it comes down to is, hey, if we are having uh, clogged emitter problems that aren't letting us optimize our yield and quality, then um, our opportunity loss, you know, how much value do we lose, typically makes the cost of um, replacing drip emitters mm. fairly uh, insignificant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Actions and inaction have consequences, so, yeah. And there are um, a, a couple, well, there's one other company in specific that, um, has come out in the market in the last couple of years with uh, pretty good drip emitters as well. And the NetFMs are historically kind of unanimously the best product on the market, but, but there is uh, another company that's coming out with a fairly comparable quality mm -hmm. of, uh, of emitter that you might give it a shot. I don't know. I'm not trying to hate on NetFM here. They make great products. So yeah. Maintenance. Sometimes you got to replace things. All right. Thank you for that question. Um, we got a couple of questions here on Instagram Live. Let's get to those. We've had we've heard this one before. Let's let's talk about it. Do untopped plants yield more than topped? Um, when managed correctly, yes. Okay. I can I can I can dig into this too. I love it. Um, <laughs> uh, it's always just nice to give give a straight answer right off the bat. <laughs> Basically, when we think about what is topping doing to a plant, well, it's removing some of the energy, some of the mass that this plant has put into growing, right? And so when we think about, all right, well, what is our goals of topping? Um, is it to make all the plants the same heights for better canopy management? Um, if that's the case, maybe we just need to do a better job with our, our clone and environmental parameters, um, making sure that these get the same treatment. Because you know, when we're looking at, at cloned crops for, for cannabis, they are very, very genetically similar mm -hmm. to one another. And so when, when we take a look and, and actually see any significant differences in, in plant heights, that's actually coming from something else. Um, it's coming from maybe clogged emitters, mm. uh, maybe from a, a microclimate or inconsistencies in um, environmental parameters in the room. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's coming from um, hot, light hot spots or, or dark spots. Maybe it's just always at the side of the room. Uh, and, and so really all we're doing is, um, one, putting labor into topping them, two, increasing how long we have to grow that plant to get the same amount of biomass out of it. Um, and yeah, three, we're basically just 
throwing some of the investment into this plant that we've put away. Mm -hmm. um, that includes both material um, and time, energy, um, all of those. Mm -hmm. So, you know, from, from my perspective, using alternative ways to manage canopy and, and optimizing crop growth means that we're taking advantage of um, all of the inputs for the most output on that plant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. There you go. I love that answer. Cool. All right. We got this question. Somebody's looking for max runoff EC for rock wool, 5.5 to 6.0 through gen flower. It's great. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. There. Bam. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Yeah. We have so many questions. Okay. Here we go. Bear with me, y'all. Here we go. And I'm going to move on to this one. We got this a few weeks back, didn't get a chance to get to it. So let's talk about it. Any tips on searing when hand watering in soil with organic inputs? My limited understanding with organics is that we are not able to steer using osmotic pressure like we do in cocoa with synthetic nutrients. I think last week we actually talked quite a bit about, or not last week, a couple of weeks ago, um, crop steering in soil. So yeah, what do you think? And watering and soil with organic inputs. Yeah, so I mean, it's definitely going to be a lot trickier to do some of the crop steering. So when we break it down to you know how how plants are absorbing um, nutrients from the substrate, it comes down to um, basically the the elemental components in in that nutrient, and that's basically the major difference between organic and synthetic nutrients is in a synthetic blend. Um, those elements are directly available to the plant from the solution immediately. When we look at uh, an organic, um, hopefully like a living soil situation, uh, what's going on is these components, um, other you know, more complex components are being broken down over time by bi biological factors in that substrate, right? Um, so we've got, <laughs> that's what makes it a living soil. You got bacteria in there, you got funguses, um, you got mycorrhizals, uh, any of those components that are, are breaking down a more complex um, chemical into things that are available for the plant. And so what happens is that release of um, breakdown has to be timed uh, in order to hopefully optimize when the plant is using them. Um, and, and so it is exactly right. It's, it's, it's a much more complex scenario where, you know, an understanding of how the soil is um, processing its organic feed, uh, you know, how long it takes, how much that results in, it's all going to change when your amendments um, should be applied for, for best output. All right. Thank you for that question. All right. We got one more question in here and I, I'm going to rephrase it. Um, so somebody is looking for, they wrote, what's the best pot size for crop steering and what's the best substrate? Maybe what we could do is give some considerations. If you are looking to grow cannabis, in a pot, um, what are some considerations that they can keep in mind if they're looking to do some crop steering? So they'd be working with cocoa, rock wool. Yeah, um, you know, and really kind of the, the first things that you want to ask yourself when evaluating what is the best substrate size for, for your application is, all right, how big of plants do I want to grow, right? Am I reduced on ceiling height? Do I have multiple tiers in the facility? Um, how how much biomass am I trying to support with this substrate? Um, you know, a lot of times for 
in indoor scenarios when we're in a a typical cultivation facility. I guess I hate to say typical, but um, you know, the the majority of of larger plants being grown, a a two gallon cocoa is a pretty good um, place to start that Mm -hmm. or, you know, running uh, four by four Rockwell blocks on a slab. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes if they're really big plants, they only run two on a slab. for medium to large plants, you know, typically we see that that three on a slab based on um, manufacturer recommendations. Uh, you know, if you're in a, a multi-tier system where maybe you've got you know only four or five feet of headspace from growing surface to the the lighting surface, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, you, you might be able to get away with a, a six by six um, by six uh, or like a one gallon cocoa bag. All right. That's a quick overview, but yeah, get the party started and then hit us up when you're, when you're ready to like get into the details. Um, yeah, just to, the easiest way to know is, um, you know, run some plants with what you are anticipating will be the the best size media for you. Have red zone sensors in there so that you got time series data to know whether you've got enough capacity to steer but not so much that you don't have control over how you're steering. Mm-hmm. That's it. And we know a little something about root zone sensors. So yeah, we'll look forward to hearing from you. All right. We got a few minutes left in the show. We're going to just get right to our big announcement. So um, first and foremost, Arroyo is going to be at MJ BizCon next month. And the moment the exhibit floor opens, we'll be dropping the biggest launch ever seen in cannabis cultivation. So now you know, um, but there's going to be three days of programming. You are not going to want to miss it. And it's all going to be happening in booth 51005 during MJ BizCon week. But Jason, what's the really exciting part? Really exciting part is we are doing Office Hours Live from the floor at MJ BizCon. So we'll be there at the booth. Uh, It's going to be Seth and Keisha and I and the crew. Um, I think we even have a a guest visitor. Ooh, not uh, telling you who yet, though. To highlight on the show. Uh, You know, hopefully it's uh, a super busy show and you might have struggles hearing us, but but we're going to talk loud and clear. And it looks like our uh, producer over here, Chris, is shaking his head. He says he's got his handled here. Yeah. It's it's, it's going to be a great show. It's going to be epic. It's going to be happening on that Thursday, November 30th from starting at 1.20 p.m. Pacific, 4.20 p.m. Eastern, just like normal. And there's going to be two ways to tap in. You can be a part of the live audience, which will be amazing. We're going to actually have a live audience for the first time ever. So if you're at MJ BizCon, just come to booth number 51005. Or you can tap into the free live stream. And way to get to that is you want to visit cloud.adium dot io slash mjbizcon dash 2023 you want to claim your spot and you want to that's going to let you uh ensure that you are informed because there's going to be a lot more updates in the coming weeks so we're really excited about this just a real opportunity to bring the office hours experience live from the show floor and uh yeah it's going to be epic i can't wait so if i'm uh bad at typing or i don't have a very good memory how else can i find that link Ooh, uh, I'm going to drop it in the chat right now. We're going to have it on you in the YouTube description. Yeah. Check the YouTube video later. It'll be up near the end of the video. Yes. You're going to want to tap in. Thanks y'all. Like right now, just as soon as the show's over, just go to that link <laughs> and sign in. Cause you don't want to miss it. Spaces are limited. Spaces are, I mean, sure. <laughs> no, but for real. 
you you want to tap into that. Amazing. All right. Well, we had a lot of questions. If we did not get to them, don't worry. We've got them in a little bit of a bank or, you know, just come back every week. This is, this is what we do. The best way to get your question answered is to join us live. Jason is so fun sitting next to you at the table. It feels a little weird. I'm more, yeah, kind of strange, but good show. I'm used to it. Yeah, I like it. I might have to move to Pullman. We'll see what happens. All right. Thank you, Jason, for another great conversation. Thank you to our producer, Chris, for helping us hold it down and make it happen. Thanks to all of you for your patience and for joining us today. Uh, we do this every Thursday. The best way to get your answers, your questions answered, is to join us live. To learn more about Arroyo, book a demo at arroyo.io, and one of our experts will walk you through all the ways the platform can improve your cultivation production process. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter, register for MJ BizCon. I mean, just hang out on the website and, and just do it all. Um, if you have a topic you'd like us to cover on a future Office Hours episode, post questions anytime on the Arroyo app, drop your question in the chat or on YouTube, send us an email to sales at arroyo.io or DM us. We are on, on, this, on all the socials, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. We want to hear from you. We'll send everyone in attendance a link to today's video and post it in the Arroyo YouTube channel. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And we'll see you at the next session and in Vegas next month. All right? Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroyo.io.